welcome to Good Medicine Explained. I am your host, Dr. James R. Brown. This is episode number 23 for the week of December the 6th, 2020. Thank you for taking the time to listen to my explanations of various health disorders and medical conditions. As a physician, I have come to realize that while our professional gift and talents are geared towards saving lives, what we accomplish more often is an extension of life beyond what natural circumstances would allow. However, the highest virtue in the healing process is also to improve the quality of that life which has been extended. With that principle in mind, my goal is to provide my listening audience with a mental picture of how our bodies normally function, describe a malfunctioning organ or biological system, and finally, mention a few solutions the medical profession utilizes to mitigate some of those problems. Ultimately, my intention is to impress and motivate everyone to cultivate a lifestyle and wellness model that promotes optimum physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health. This coming week, England will be the first country in the world to start administering COVID-19 vaccinations to selected individuals. For the next several weeks and months, scientists and citizens around the world will be watching what the effects of this mass inoculation will have on British recipients, as well as the impact in reducing coronavirus infections in Great Britain and then later around the world. This very important experiment will give humanity in the 21st century its first glimpse, if not only how well we protect ourselves from deadly pathogens on our planet, but also how willing we are to share this life-saving resource with the rest of our brothers and sisters on this planet. It is at this point in world history that I intersect with a brief discussion about vaccinations. When microorganisms we call germs, which are usually viruses or bacteria, fungi, or other small microorganisms, when they invade our bodies, several things happen. They attack and co-opt healthy human cells, and they multiply. This invasion of a foreign organism will elicit a cascade of cellular events called an infection, which we sense as illness symptoms. Fortunately, our immune system is equipped to use several different tools to help us fight infections. Our blood contains white blood cells, which help us to defend against germs, known as the humoral immune response. Different types of white blood cells are called into action to counteract and remove invading organisms. One of them is called macrophages. 
These macrophages are large white blood cells that can engulf and digest germs or dead and dying cells. The macrophages leave behind partially digested parts of the invaded germ, which we call antigens. The antigens are recognized as foreign and dangerous, thus stimulating the production of antibodies to attack them. Another of the white blood cells is called B lymphocytes. B lymphocytes are the specialized white blood cells that manufacture antibodies to attack the partially digested pieces of a germ or the antigen that were left behind by the macrophages. And the third type of specialized white blood cell is called the T lymphocyte. These are another type of specialized white blood cells that attack infected cells in our body. So, when a virus or a bacteria initially invades our body, it can take several days or weeks for our body to make and use all the germ-fighting tools necessary to overcome the infection. After an infection, a person's immune system will remember what it learned about how to protect the body against that disease. The body keeps a few of the T lymphocytes, which are known as memory cells, which can go quickly into action and multiply if the body encounters the same virus again. When familiar antigens are detected, B lymphocytes, the antibodies, again produce an army of antibodies to attack the foreign invading pathogen. Sometimes the invasion can happen so intensely and quickly that our natural immune system isn't able to elicit a life-saving response quickly or effectively enough. And it's in these instances where vaccines have come to save the day. So immunization or inoculation is the process by which a person is protected against a particular disease. Vaccination is the act of artificially introducing a stronger host response to a seriously harmful disease. There are several medical organizations and societies that take responsibility for oversight in vaccine administrations. These include the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, or the ACIP, the CDC, the American College of Physicians, the American Academy of Family Physicians, and the American Academy of Pediatrics. Principles that guide the type of immunization to be used include its safety, responsibilities of the individual giving the vaccine, and proper storage. 
Most vaccines are safe to administer, causing only minor side effects. The more common problem with immunization is the missed opportunity to vaccinate, based in part upon public misconceptions about the safety of an immunization. Many vaccines and toxoids can cause side effects, such as a fever, local reaction at the site of the injection, or even a serum sickness-like reaction. These adverse reactions can be caused by the moiety in the vaccine or by trace amounts of antibiotics, preservatives, stabilizers, or residual animal proteins that were part of the vaccine. These side effects are not considered true contraindications to vaccination. True contraindications to vaccinations are rare, and they include severe hypersensitivity reactions, such as anaphylaxis, and severe neurologic complications. Administration of live virus vaccines to immunocompromised patients is also contraindicated. Vaccinations should be avoided only if true contraindications are present. The following are not contraindications to immunizations. A current or recurrent mild illness with or without low-grade fever. Current or recurrent antibiotic therapy. Previous mild to moderate local tenderness, redness, swelling, or fever less than 104 degrees. A personal history of allergies, uh, egg allergies, or family history of adverse reactions to immunizations. None of these would be considered contraindications. Now, if there is an adverse reaction to an immunization, it should be reported to the party that administered the immunization. Adverse events associated with vaccinations must be reported to the United States Department of Health and Human Services using the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, or the VAERS. Reportable events to the VAERS include anaphylaxis, or an anaphylactic shock, within seven days of any vaccine, encephalopathy, encephalitis, or seizures, any sequela of reportable events, any other serious or unusual event, or vaccine side effects that are listed as contraindications to future vaccinations in the package insert for that vaccine. Barriers to people getting immunization in adults include missed opportunities during contacts with healthcare professionals in offices, outpatient clinics, and hospitals, 
lack of vaccine delivery systems in the public and private sectors that can reach adults in different settings, such as their workplace. Patient and provider fears about adverse events following vaccination or even provider concerns about the efficacy of individual vaccines. Now, in terms of vaccine administration, it is vital to maintain a permanent immunization record in the medical record, and it should include the name, address, and title of the person administering the vaccine the type of vaccine and the dose, the manufacturer and lot number for that vaccine, the side, site and route of administration, the date that the vaccine was administered, and the date that the next dose might be due. As far as a technique, most of us have received vaccinations. Most adult vaccinations are administered intramuscularly or subcutaneously, usually in or over the deltoid muscle. The deltoid muscular injections should be administered around the midpoint of the muscle, two to three fingers below the acromion process. That's the bone in your shoulder. Many people wonder why the arm rather than the buttock is used for vaccinations. In general, gluteal or buttock administration should be avoided for standard immunizations because the immunogenicity or the reaction to the vaccine will be diminished when given in the buttock. Now, as far as immunization is concerned, we have what is known as passive and active immunization. Passive immunization involves the administration of donor antibodies directly to a host body. A classic example would be a mother who is breastfeeding her baby. Another example of passive immunity would be intramuscular immune globulin that's derived from human serum that's been pooled together to form an antitoxin. Passive immunization offers short-term protection to people who have been or will be exposed to specific pathogens, and it's typically used by immunocompromised persons who are unable to produce an effective immune response with active immunization. Examples, again, would be convalescent plasma that we give to COVID-19 infected individuals. Passive immunization is not routinely recommended for healthy adults because the majority of adults are capable of producing a durable immune response through their own active immunization process. Passive immunization is occasionally used for healthcare workers, pregnant women, or international travelers.
Now, as opposed to the passive form of immunization, active immunization induces immunity by promoting the development of antibodies in the recipient, a response which is expected to be durable. The goal of active immunization of a vaccine or toxoid is to stimulate the host to produce a primary immune response, usually by inducing B-cell proliferation, antibody response, and T-cell sensitization. If an individual is subsequently exposed to the pathogen, pathogen against which the vaccine was directed, a secondary response should be evoked, which includes an increased proliferation of B cells and the formation of antibodies to protect the individual from developing the disease, and this should be ideally for life. Some vaccines will require boosters to sustain long-lasting protection. Vaccines for active immunization are derived from a variety of sources. They can be from whole-killed bacteria. They could be from live bacteria that has been weakened or viruses that have been weakened or from antigenic subunits of the organism, particles or pieces, or from its genetic composition. Toxoids used for active immunization are bacterial toxins that have been modified to render them non-toxic. So toxoids induce the formation of antitoxin antibodies. If a host is exposed to the bacterial toxin after immunization, the antitoxin antibodies will bind to the, that bacterial toxin, thereby preventing a toxin-mediated disease. As far as the live attenuated vaccines, meaning these are vaccines that have been available uh, since the 1950s. They've been derived from disease-causing pathogens like a virus or a bacteria that have been weakened under laboratory conditions. They'll grow in a vaccinated individual, but because they're weak, they'll cause no or only mild disease. Examples of this are BCG for tuberculosis, the oral polio vaccine, measles, rotavirus, and yellow fever. The pros for receiving a live attenuated vaccine is that they can stimulate an excellent immune response that's nearly as good as to a real infection from a wild pathogen. The live microorganisms provide continual antigenic stimulation, giving sufficient time for memory cell production for lifelong immunity. In the case of viruses or intracellular organisms where a cell-mediated immunity is desired, 
attenuated pathogens are capable of replicating within host cells. Now, the cons to a live virus uh, vaccine would be that the attenuated pathogens have the rare potential to revert back to a real live form and cause disease in the person that they've uh, administered it to. Examples of this are very rare, but serious adverse events from a vaccine-associated paralytic poliomyelitis. So some people who've had the polio vaccine have actually gotten polio infection. Uh, Or the disease-causing vaccine derived from the polio virus, from oral polio. Uh, individuals with compromised immune systems, for example, someone that has HIV, may not be able to respond adequately to these attenuated antigens. Although the actual potential for fetal damage remains theoretical, live attenuated vaccines are not administered during pregnancy. Inactive whole cell or killed antigen vaccines are another type of vaccine. This involves uh, vaccines that are made from microorganisms like viruses or bacteria that have been killed through a physical or chemical process. And these killed organisms can't cause disease. Uh, Examples of such uh, inactive whole cell vaccine includes the whole cell pertussis vaccine uh, and the inactivated poliovirus vaccines. The pros of these types of vaccines is that the inactivated whole cell vaccines have no risk of inducing the disease that they were given against because they don't have any live components. And they're considered to be more stable than live attenuated vaccines. However, the cons for an inactive whole cell vaccine is that they may not always induce an immune response and may need additional booster shots. Uh, And the response that is uh, created by the inactivated whole cell may not be long-lived. A third type of vaccine is what we call a subunit or purified antigen vaccine. Subunit vaccines do not contain live components of the pathogen, and they differ from inactivated whole, whole cell vaccines by containing only the antigenic part of the pathogen. So it's a portion of a virus, like a foot off of your body or a hand. In terms of these uh, parts, they're sufficient enough to elicit a protective immune response. The precision in which that particular combination of subunit particles elicits an effective immune response can be costly to create. 
subunit vaccines can also be identified into three little groups. You could have a protein-based subunit, meaning it's just got a protein particle like acellular pertussis or hepatitis B vaccine. A second of the three types is a polysaccharide subunit, such as meningococcal or pneumococcal infections. These bacteria that infect humans are protected by a polysaccharide or sugar capsule that keeps the organism evading the human defense system, especially infants and young children. So the polysaccharide vaccines are created to respond against the molecules in the capsule of the bacteria. A third type of the subunit vaccines are called conjugate vaccines. Now compared to the polysaccharide vaccine, the conjugate vaccines benefit from a technology that binds the polysaccharide in the capsule to a carrier protein that can induce a long-term protective response, even in infants. Various carrier proteins are used for conjugation, including diphtheria and tetanus toxoid. Conjugate subunit vaccines therefore, can prevent common bacterial infections for which plain polysaccharide vaccines are ineffective or, at most, they have a risk for only short-term protection. With the advent of conjugate subunit vaccines, a new age of immunization against diseases caused by encapsulated organisms such as meningococcus and Haemophilus influenza type B, and pneumococcal uh, uh, bacteria have been created. They prevent common bacterial infections for which the plain polysaccharide vaccines aren't effective. The pros of the conjugate vaccines is They have no live components, and therefore, there's no risk for inducing disease. They're safer and more stable than live attenuated vaccines, and they have an excellent stability profile. The cons to using a conjugate vaccine is that a lot of money and work is necessary to determine which combination of antigenic properties will produce the effective immune response with the correct pathway. So while a response can be elicited from a conjugate vaccine, there's no guarantee that the memory will form to protect from future exposures. And then lastly, there are toxoid vaccines, which are based on toxins produced by certain bacterias. An example, again, is tetanus or diphtheria. The toxin invades the bloodstream of the host 
and it's largely responsible for the symptoms of the disease. A protein-based toxin is rendered harmless in a toxoid vaccine and then is used as the antigen to the vaccine to elicit the immune response. To increase the immune response, the toxoid is absorbed or combined with aluminum or calcium salts, which will also amplify the response. The pro ideas of toxoid vaccines is that they can be uh, safe because they don't cause the disease it prevents. The vaccine antigens are not actively multiplying and they don't spread to an unimmunized individual. Toxoid vaccines rarely uh, cause local or systemic reactions. They're usually stable and long-lasting, and they have an excellent stability profile. The cons of the toxoid vaccines is that they may require several doses, and they usually need an adjuvant to help with eliciting a good response. Now, in regards to the COVID-19 vaccines, there's currently three different types of the COVID-19 vaccines that are undergoing the large-scale clinical trials that you've heard about here in the United States. There is the mRNA vaccine, that's the messenger RNA. It contains genetic material from the actual coronavirus that instructs host cells to make a unique, harmless protein from the virus. After our cells make copies of that protein, they destroy the genetic material from the vaccine. Our antibodies are then able to recognize that the protein should not be there, and it generates the T lymphocyte and B lymphocyte reaction that remembers to fight the virus if we become infected by the real virus in the future. The second type of COVID-19 vaccine is using the protein subunit that we talked about earlier. It includes a harmless piece of protein from the coronavirus that causes the infection. And once vaccinated, our immune system recognizes that the proteins don't belong in our body, and it begins making T lymphocytes and B lymphocytes, or antibodies. So if we're ever infected in the future, the memory cells will recognize and fight the virus. The third and last of the COVID-19 vaccinations that are being created is called a vector vaccine. Now, this type of vaccine contains a weakened version of the actual live virus. It's a different virus than the one that causes COVID-19, but it has genetic material that's similar to COVID-19 virus inserted into it. 
and that's why it's called a viral vector. Once the viral vector is inside our cells, the genetic material directs our cell to make a protein that's unique to the real COVID-19 virus. Using these instructions, our cells are making copies of this protein, and this prompts our body to build T lymphocytes and B lymphocytes that will remember to fight the virus if we are infected in the future. Now, the take-home points from this discussion. Number one, most vaccines induce active immunity by promoting the development of antibodies in the recipient, a response which is expected to be durable. Number two, passive immunization, which usually involves the administration of the actual antibody, will produce a transient immunity for a specific exposure by the transfer of antibodies directly. Examples are breastfeeding or convalescent plasma for COVID-19 infected persons. A third take-home point is that active immunization is administration of live or weakened, which we call attenuated, cellular or genetic parts of a microorganism to induce an amplified production of antibodies in the recipient. So all of the forms of the COVID-19 vaccine are utilizing uh, methods of active immunization. And number four, the administration standards for recording vaccinations and adverse reactions help to assure that only safe vaccines are maintained in circulation. If this particular topic or any of the previous episodes have provoked questions for you, be reassured that I do regular Q&As on my Instagram account at jrbrownmd, where you may submit your questions there through direct messages. However, I emphasize that I do not serve as a replacement or substitute for your own personal physicians nor do I provide individualized consultations outside of my practice. Hopefully, this discussion has encouraged more listeners to get a flu shot now and be more informed about taking the coronavirus vaccine once it becomes available for individuals with high risk and then the larger community. As I regularly do, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank my podcast team, Lauren and Natalie, who really are responsible for making this podcast possible. This week, we join our Jewish friends in wishing them a happy Hanukkah after sundown on December 10th. 
Until our next opportunity, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you be loved, and may you have a peaceful heart.